Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame football started spring practice Thursday. The Irish men's basketball team won an NCAA tournament game on Wednesday night. The women's basketball team will start its tournament run on Saturday. And the Irish have the number one baseball team in the country, so it's not exactly a bad time to be a Notre Dame fan right now. But, of course, we must feed our obsession with football. So we asked former Notre Dame offensive lineman and mayonnaise lobbyist Mike Dolick Jr. to spend some time with us today. Mike, thanks for joining us. I have slowly started to realize, guys, that that decision in the broadcast booth is going to define the rest of my life. Like, you don't often and always get to choose what your legacy is, and this just happens to be mine. Hey, it's better to be remembered than forgotten, right? <laughs> Mike, the first thing I want, I want to start with is certainly Harry Heastan. Did, did, did it feel different in the air where you're at? Uh, knowing that Harry Heastan was on a football field coaching offensive lineman at Notre Dame. It, it, it is amazing. You know, my, my coffee hit a little bit different. The mayonnaise tasted a little twangier that day. Like it, it, it really did feel like a homecoming though. And, and I think for so many of us that certainly played for Harry and were fortunate to be there during his you know first time at Notre Dame. And it, just those of us that have been in the room and got used to the, the pride that we took in the way Notre Dame football has played that position. And Jeff Quinn did an outstanding job with that group as well in his seasons at the helm. But I just think we all know how much this matters to coach he stand and I think that's always what struck me was how deeply personal, not just coaching football is for Coach Eastan, but coaching football for this particular team in this particular room, knowing what the Notre Dame offensive line room has produced in the past. Well, Mike, you went through kind of a whole Rolodex of offensive line coaches during your time at Notre Dame, but I'm wondering your first encounter with Harry on the football field what was that like and how long did it take for him to win you over uh it, it was very quick the beauty of coach Eastan too was he comes in with the resume that he already had right he came to us that first time from Tennessee and we had seen the guys that he had helped turn into pros there you know going all the way back to his time at Illinois it, it, you knew right away there was that instant respect for the resume, but it was just that, it, that like, it didn't even take till we got to spring practice on the field. It was off season workouts. It was those first meetings where he made it abundantly clear. He is going to expect and demand a lot out of us, but he is going to give us every ounce of what he had. And everyone knows anyone who's ever had a new coach come into their room or a new boss come into their life. Words only go so far. The actions had to match. And as soon as we got on the field for the workouts where coaches could be a part of those off-season mat drills, you saw the attention to detail. You saw that it wasn't going to just be, hey, all right, we'll do this drill so we can get to the next drill so we can get to the next drill. It's we're going to do things that are only going to transfer to the football field, and we're going to do them until we get them right. And right for Harry had a very cut and dry. There was clear expectations. And so as a player, that's all you can ask for is for the actions to match the words and for there to be a clear understanding and clear expectations for what's expected of you. Mike, given that, how immediate do you feel like the impact will be seen with this offensive line this season? Uh, very quickly. Uh, the beauty of Harry's offensive lines is they stick out like a sore thumb for the right reasons. And, and I think that holds true for all of the best coach units in college football. You know, Bill Biedenbaugh on the job that he's done at Oklahoma for a whole bunch, you know, did at Oklahoma for a whole bunch of years. Sam Pittman and the offensive lines that he was churning out when he was at Georgia, like well-coached units. And whether that's the offensive line, defensive line, secondaries, like especially in college where you're still developing high-end players, the technique tends to look the same across the board when it's well-coached. To me, if you can watch five guys all stepping in unison, there is a clear directive. All right, on zone plays, we are all stepping with our play side foot first. Our backside foot lands here, you know. All of those things with Harry are non-negotiable. That and then the effort you see downfield. Because the other thing that Harry doesn't play with is – 
if you have a running back that's down and is after a seven-yard game, five guys are supposed to be there picking him up. If your quarterback goes out in the opposing sideline, he is supposed to have a convoy back to wherever the football is at the line of scrimmage. All of those things, like, again, that's, that's day one before we get to how good of a football player you will be. That's what level of teammate you will be. And, again, that is absolutely non-negotiable. Mike, um, the kind of something that's intriguing for me for at least a spring standpoint, we know or we believe that um, Patterson is going to be back. Jarrett Patterson is going to be back for Ohio State after tearing that pec muscle, but he's going to miss spring. And, and one of his backups, Pat Coogan, is also out. So Harry's, to get a second-string center, is going to need to shuffle somebody over there. And maybe he already had some, somebody in mind. If if you're a guard, is it um, are you losing any development moving over to center and spending a spring at center, uh, knowing that you're going to eventually slide back to guard? I don't think so. I, as someone who you know did that, you know my right. first start my first starts at Notre Dame came at center before I slid out to guard. In a lot of instances on the inside, you're going to rep at multiple positions unless you're like Zach Martin. You know, like yeah. every all the rest of us kind of have to learn. You know the intricacies of each spot. And I think it helps you see the bigger picture a lot more clearly, right? Like it's amazing how much better I became when Braxton Cave slid back in at center because I knew a little more of what you needed at that position. You know, you see it even sliding over one spot. You see defenses from a different vantage point. You see your landmarks and how you're supposed to help guys from a different vantage point. And so I think it can help make you a better player just by seeing the bigger picture. And that's why, you know, when we would take our offensive line tests for Coach Eastand, you know, you're not just filling out for your spot on the line. You got to know what everybody's doing and having a, a more intimate way to see that and gaining another skill. Because for all these guys, too, you're trying to get to the NFL by and large. So if you're doing that, being developed there. We see it every year at the combine. We see it every year at the senior bowl. You got guys that were playing guard and tackle all of a sudden saying, Hey, my future might be at center. Let me start snapping a football. You develop that skill now and you're ahead of the curve. Just to follow up on that, you mentioned tests for Easton. And I think we know what that is, but didn't you have, I mean, isn't, wasn't that written tests and what were the consequences of doing well or not well on those tests? You know what? There were no like explicit consequences other than the ire and the displeasure of Coach Eastand. And you live your life as an offensive lineman for him trying to avoid that, right? You were trying not to get cussed out as often as possible because, again, all of it matters to him. And so those were tests that we took seriously as a unit. Those were ones and they were a great exercise for us because most everything coach Eastan wants you to do, he wants you to do together, right? The offensive line, he wants it to be the running joke on campus that you never see one guy without the others in that unit, that you're eating meals together, that after practice, you're working extra together, that you're watching film together so that you can all see it through one set of eyes. Like if you have to pare down like some of the core tenants of Harry Heastan coach. And really, you know, that's the Joe Moore tree of offensive line coach football. It's seeing it through one set of eyes, five guys seeing the same thing. And you only accomplish that by talking that stuff through together. So yeah, when we're taking a written test, we'd sit in the hotel rooms the night before games and we'd all pack into one room and hang out and talk for a bit. And we'd go through those quizzes. And if guys had questions or if we had something we were unsure on, we made sure we were answering it together because one of us or two of us being right, if three others are wrong, doesn't do us a damn bit of good. Yeah. Mike, we, we've seen a bit of Joe Alt last season. We saw less of Blake Fisher because of his injury, but they're both obviously talented. What do you, what do you think makes those guys special? And what are your thoughts on the the decision to have one play left tackle versus one play and right tackle? The job is to get your best five on the field, right? And so if those two both played at different points in last year as well as they did, then your best serve to figure that out. Again, both of them young enough in their career right now where you don't have to worry about a guy being settled to left or right. You know, it, it's, it's a tough transition. I, I will never undersell that as someone had to, you know, try and bop around on all those spots a couple of times. It is a tough transition, but they're young enough and have the right coach to, to be able to develop that. 
and they're talented. You know, with Joe, what stuck out to me was his base. I, I thought for a young guy, he did a really good job of keeping his feet underneath him. All, all those guys last year, as the young guys started to get into the season more and more, hands were a work in progress, but I thought feet kept them in the fight for a fair amount of time last year. And, and I thought Joe was the case in that. You know, you know, for him, strength development is going to be a big part of this, you know, what he does in the offseason. But I, I thought that foundation was there. And Blake, I mean, man, we, you know, and I know a lot of people, you know, got antsy about the comparisons on the way in, you know, I think they, they said that he was, you know, even more physically talented than like a Ronnie Stanley and people immediately freak out because these are, you know, guys that were the first round pedigree and all this. But I will say, I don't know if we've had a, a physically gifted athlete like him just because of what a mountain of a human being he is, right? Like I spent time out there during a spring ball or training camp last year when he wasn't suited up in full pads and he's just a mountain of a human being. And it's, it's going to be really fun to watch the way coach he molds him because if you pair any of the technique that you know is a part of coaching, I mean, last year, Blake was out there, bro, right? Like he was throwing haymakers. He was knocking the hell out of guys. It's fun to watch because, again, like he walked out of the hospital with those gifts. And so it's just cool to see someone who's able to do that, bend the way that he does, move the way he does athletically. And now as you start chiseling away at that block of marble and adding technique that we know is possible with these guys to that, that that's truly a sky's the limit kind of talent. And if Blake wants to be the best offensive lineman or one of the best offensive linemen to ever walk out of the doors in Notre Dame. He's got the physical ability to do so. And now he's got a coach that we know has a proven track record of that. I, I like the idea of baby Blake Fisher knocking over nurses out of his way out of the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got to leave. I'm so hungry. <laughs> Mike, the uh, player that I think Notre Dame fans have the most angst or interest in that's not a starter is Rocco Spindler, who spent last spring working with the ones. And then as they got into fall camp, you know, there were healthier players and, and he ended up being a backup. What, what's your impression of Rocco? What's maybe his, I mean, is there a chance that he's the next center after Patterson, even though he's never played there? How do you see that whole interior kind of working itself out? Yeah, you know what? And obviously, Rocco came in. We knew there was a bunch of talent there. And I think the beauty of what's going to happen next with Coach Eastand is he doesn't care about what the prior thought of you was. So whatever the thought of, uh, of Rocco was in the old offensive line room or, or, or with Brian Kelly there as the head man, none of that matters now. Like, you're in full prove-it mode here. And so if you're healthy, especially in this first spring, you know, nothing gets decided in spring. As players, we all get ourselves worked up and antsy thinking we're going to go win a starting job in the spring. And it never happens. Like, that's just not what spring ball is for. It's skill development. It's getting a look at plenty of guys. Like, those are either decisions that are already made or I think in this case, because Coach E stands now getting his hands back on this room for the first time, you're going to get a measuring mark and then you're going to have that decided in fall camp. So Rocco's got a great opportunity amongst that interior group now that we know could be right for some moves around there. But at the very least, yeah, I think, you know, it'd be foolish not to think of the potential of being a successor once Jarrett does, does finally head to the pros after this year. Mike, what are your expectations for how Tommy Reese will continue to evolve the offense this season? Whatever we got, Tommy will use it to the best of their ability. Like it's, he's earned that trust now too, which is awesome because I remember after last year, people were talking about, you know, would Tommy be able to spread it out and throw it around all that stuff? And I was like, guys, like, don't worry about this. Like my, my guys got this. Obviously I come to this from a place of extreme bias, having played with Tommy and, and loving him dearly, but it, it's just been really, I mean, satisfying personally to watch him gain so much respect nationally in the way that he has, how he really multiple times last year had two, three different offenses in the body of the game, depending on who was in at quarterback, whether it was Tyler, whether it was Pine, whether it was Jack Cohn. I mean, it was, it really early in the season, we know working around an offensive line that was banged up and not playing its best football. And then by the end of the season, being able to incorporate so many different things. And so I think for Tommy, the, the thing to keep an eye on too is 
the run game is probably going to look a little bit dip, more different. I, I would be shocked if they don't get back to a little bit more zone blocking. I know Coach Heastan, that was a big part of his tool belt, at least when I was there. They've always been pretty scheme versatile, but um, a, a lot of that also depends on the tight end room. You're fortunate to have one of the best in the country, and you're usually pretty deep there. But that room, to me, goes the longest way in determining what you're going to run as an offense because versatile big skill pieces – they're, you know, the staple of, I mean, really football forever. But when you look at modern football in the college or NFL level, you know, we saw it with Bowers and that Georgia team that won the uh, college football playoff last year. It, it just changes the math when you've got a player like Michael Mayer in the middle of the field. So I'd expect them to, you know, to lean heavy on heavy, heavy down the middle of the field, the way that we're used to, you know, tight end running back and offensive line are always going to be in healthy supply in this version of Notre Dame. And I think for the rest of it, you know, Tyler, if he's the guy, is going to provide you that rushing element that we saw Tommy play with a ton last year. And, and I think as you combine and expand that with, a, am sure, a growing arsenal of that passing attack that they kept layering in with him, it, it's going to give Tom the ability to be really creative. But I think especially show, so because I expect the foundation of that offensive line to be so much better than it was early on last year because of health, because of, uh, of another year of development for all these young guys. I, I think all of that as the foundation is going to allow Tom to do more. And then you factor in, you've got a quarterback now with another year of playing time under his belt. Mike, what's your impressions of Marcus Freeman so far as a head coach? I, I've been impressed by the energy that he's been able to maintain, right? Because when he first comes in, and you hear, you know, every recruit's going to have my phone number. I am going to be a part of all these things. It's, you know, we see the, the most successful college football coaches in the country. Certainly the head man always plays a part in that. But Marcus was, you know, the tip of the spear on so much of this stuff in a way that I just wondered from like a physical standpoint, was that sustainable? And he has found kids. a way to maintain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, maybe that's the training, right? Like he's already had that on the home front. So clearly this man is forged in the fire and ready for this moment. But uh, no, I've been really impressed by the energy that he's maintained in that portion of things. And then I think for the rest of this, like I think the bowl game was such a great microcosm of like everything and some of the things in game management that we see, you know, coach was still going to have to work through from that head man vantage point. But there seems to be one, a willingness to continue to go out here and learn in those areas. But two, there is energy. And I can tell you from the former player standpoint, there is, you know, an added amount of inclusiveness as well. And I think that had gotten so much better under Coach Kelly in the last decade from when I left school, the way that now, all right, you've got, you know, a guy like Hunter Biven leading the charge inside that football building, trying to make sure you're keeping the alumni involved in this, trying to make sure you're keeping former players close close and to see that continue to matter to this staff to this program you know they're bringing a bunch of us back and have invited a bunch of us back for the spring game weekend with some cool stuff going on and I think all of those continued efforts that Marcus come in and again picked up that mantle and said no this is still really important to us that we have guys around here who understand what makes Notre Dame special and can be a part of this continuing to grow into a program that competes for national championships. I, I think understanding what the whole picture demands of you at Notre Dame is so important because we know this isn't a normal job. We know you've got so many different people that you've got to keep happy. And so far, in addition to focusing on the main thing, I think Marcus has balanced those pretty well. Mike, at the combine earlier this month, we saw wide receiver Kevin Austin Jr. have a really impressive showing. I think people have sort of reacted to that in different ways that maybe Notre Dame didn't maximize his talent or maybe he's a better athlete than a receiver. Which, which side of that argument do you fall on? I think injury timing is really unfortunate in a lot of careers. And I think ultimately anything beyond that is really reaching to try and make a point that's not there. Right. We all knew that Kevin was a phenomenal athlete. Now seeing the numbers test that well, uh, it was, 
you know, always really impressive when you see someone put on a show in that setting, just because you've got the side-by-side comparisons there. And, and we said it every time we saw Kevin for an extended period, right? Notre Dame does not have a lot of wideouts and a lot of skill players that move the way he did. It's similar to Kyle on defense, right? Like in the last two decades, I don't know if we've had an athlete like Kyle Hamilton on defense at Notre Dame. And so it, it, it's, it pops when you see it, but I, I really think for Kevin, it was just, you know, injuries derailed all of the opportunities where we felt like he was finally getting traction there. And so I, I'm excited for him because just from a personal level, like I always remind people, you have four or five years in college for a lot of these guys to just play football. Like some of us that will, you know, go pro in something other than sports, you don't get a lot of those opportunities back and they're precious. And, and I think just from that standpoint, you want to see guys have that opportunity. I was glad Kevin had last year to really string that together finally. And I hope this means now that he'll have the chance to do that on Sundays and maybe that injury issues and those things that popped up so much for him will all of a sudden become a thing of the past and he'll get a little bit better luck from that standpoint, just so you can see the guy play some ball for a little bit. And oh, by the way, potentially change his life with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So I wish him well, man. He, he stuck around. He battled through a lot of that stuff, stuck with Notre Dame, you know, gave it his all out there. So I'm excited for him and it's cool to see him come off the combine starting to turn heads because we know there just wasn't as much tape as we all wanted for him coming out of Notre Dame. Mike, my last question has to do with coaching transitions and you were part of one going from the Charlie Weiss era to Brian Kelly. I'm sure the dynamics are a lot different with a first year coach and also somebody that was elevated. But when you were, um, you know, in your early times with Brian and him adjusting to what Notre Dame was and what it was about as a player, did you notice the miscues? And I'm not, I'm not asking you to be critical of him, but as a player, did you notice maybe the growing pains of growing into that job? You know, I I think for Brian and the dynamics are, it's so funny because they're so different, right? right? Like, with Brian coming in and, and, you know, again, I I am forever indebted to Charlie and him giving me that opportunity, still close with coach Weiss to this day. But, you know, when Brian came in, so we knew things were going to be very different, but the one thing that stuck out right away with him was, Oh, he's done this before. Like he's done the head coaching thing before. And so all the things logistically around the program, it was like, all right, no, he, he, again, created an expectation early on, had clear standards, knew how he wanted things done. It was just, you know, then we got to the fall and you saw those first couple of games where he was getting too riled up on the sideline and, you know, NBC's got a million cameras trained on him. And that part's a little bit different than it was at Cincinnati, that it was at Central Michigan. And so you saw, you know, Brian calm down so much over the years, really change. I, I think, you know, his some of his approach in that regard over the years. But again, always, always, always because of that prior head coaching experience understood how he wanted things done, but it was, you know, different. It was pro offense to spread offense. It was a guy that came from the NFL to a career college coach for this. Now what's going to be strange is this is a guy who everyone in the building knows who's got a staff that, you know, has plenty of the core pieces that are still around. You know, if you've got your strength and conditioning coach and your offensive coordinator and the guy that was your D coordinator in the building last year, you have some big time pillars as a player that aren't going to be too different culture wise from what you experience there. And so I think a lot of this is going to, again, go back to some of the in-game stuff, some of the decisions that you make as the head man, as far as, you know, the larger program things that you do that might be those places. But I really think this is going to be an instance where, you know, we just noticed because it was an entire different system of doing things. It's going to be a lot more subtle here and, I'm not sure this is something, and this is a, a you know a huge win if you're a player that you're really going to notice. You know, this might be something that we in the media harp on that fans see and, and notice as it goes along. But I think for the players, part of the appeal, part of the reason you saw so many guys that had pro prospects sticking around was you knew there was going to be that familiarity, and it was someone that you already had a lot of built-in trust in over the last eleven months. All right, Mike, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time, as always, to share your insight with us, and uh, have a good weekend. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or on the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND, and Eric's at ehansonnd. 
Before we answer our first question, I want to point our listeners in the direction of our Inside ND Sports subscription sale, which ends Sunday night. New subscribers can get a full year for just $22 with the promo code ND22. Visit InsideNDSports.com to sign up. First question we have is from the Insider Lounge. C.S. Ryan asked, uh, well, he says a lot of things just before he asks something, so I'll get into it first. In my opinion, Marcus Freeman has publicly gone out of his way to be inclusive towards his staff and extremely honest about his limitations, openly admitting the limits of his expertise, highlighting his learning from others, and delegating a majority of the offense to Reese. That said, his actions so far lead me to believe that he has been decisive in his own style in building his program, coaching turnover following the Fiesta Bowl, and truly making recruiting a priority. From your perspectives, do you see this? I do, and I wrote about a lot of those elements in my column uh, yesterday. And I think to expand on that for your question, um, I think there are pillars in place about what Marcus stands for. I mean, his brand is recruiting all the time. He mentioned it in his third sentence in, in the press conference about the first practice. That's how important recruiting was. And it came up in a question later uh, that Tyler asked, and he was able to really put um, in perspective what the pot of gold campaign was like. Um, and, and just in little things where he mentions, like there were no fights in practice and he compared it to other places he's been where there were fights in practice and why he didn't feel that was necessary. But I think there are going to be things that he adds along the way as he learns, you know, the one thing that he, uh, revealed that I thought was interesting yesterday was, okay, now I have a clear uh, picture of what I want our identity to be. That's him talking. And it was being very good against the run on defense and being able to run on offense. Those are two things that Notre Dame wasn't, or one thing Notre Dame was not very good at last year. And one thing that they can improve. And I, pointed out in my column that going back to Notre Dame's last national championship, so that's 34 national champions, 31 have been in the top 25 in run defense, and the other three, none of them were lower than 40. Um, Every Notre Dame national champion post-World War II has been top 20 run defense, and six of the seven have been top 10. So I think he's on to something certainly there. And then that, that'll that widen out. There will be more details. I think at some point he's going to talk about, again, wanting to recruit the dynamic athletes at quarterback and wide receiver that's going to give those fundamental uh, – the fundamental base of the offensive line, the defensive line being the foundation of the team, adding to that so that you can compete with the Alabamas and the Ohio States in those big stage games. So I think it's both. And I think we'll see those kind of statements as we get closer to the season. Yeah, I, I really appreciate his honesty, I think, uh, which was sort of the first pr- part of the, the question, um, that he, he he isn't afraid to admit that there's certain things he hasn't figured out yet or certain things that he's not the, the foremost, foremost expert on. Um, while also having a lot of conviction in what he believes will move this program forward. So um, I think it's fascinating to sort of watch develop um, from our perspective as, as reporters. Um, I mean, in, in the end, the execution will, will be what matters and that's what he will be judged on. Um, but I think, I think there's, I personally have an appreciation for sort of how he's approached things. Um, now, will it work? I, who knows? I mean, uh, stranger things have happened than uh guys you think would be successful coaches not being successful. Uh, but I, I, uh, I sort of, uh, I think it's refreshing to see sort of his uh, transparency in certain ways um, in terms of what he's trying to do. Now it might not be transparency in allowing us to see all the practices, but uh, I think uh, uh, we'll sort of get a better, better sense of how, how the execution of that plan is coming as spring moves forward and into the fall. Next question is from at Patrick Shields Zero. Have you ever experienced Notre Dame football with this level of energy before? How does it compare to previous coaching changes and past eras? 
And what is the best coaching comparison to Freeman in college football? Okay, so the first part of that question, I've been in sports writing long enough to see six transitions as Notre Dame's head coach. Now, I wasn't at the South Bend Tribune for the first of them, but I was covering college sports and I was in Indiana. So for me, the number one with the most energy that I've ever seen is Lou Holtz. Um, Lou Holtz going from Jerry Faust because there were so many articles that Notre Dame was never going to be the same again. And then Faust gets fired and they pluck Lou Holtz, who had been at Minnesota. And Minnesota was awful before Holtz got there. He was only there a couple of years, but Holtz had won other places and people were fascinated by him. And there was a belief that maybe everybody was wrong about Notre Dame never being, you know, what people are saying about Nebraska now that they'll never be a power again. And so that was, I, I'd say that would be number one for me. Freeman would be number two. And I think a lot of the reason there's so much energy is because of Marcus himself and also what the state of the program is. You're going from a program that was in the uh, college football playoff two out of the last four years came close to getting in this year. They were fifth. Um, and then I think recruiting gets people excited. A guy that can certainly erase some of the history of Notre Dame saying, well, they'll never be able to have a top five recruiting class because of their academic standards. And now, that suddenly seems possible. So Freeman would be number two. I would say um, Brian Kelly was number three out of that bunch. The O'Leary-Willingham combo, number four. Charlie Weiss, number five. And I would say the least um, enthusiasm was for Bob Davey being promoted uh, because people felt like, you know, the final three – Tom Clements and uh, the Northwestern coach, whose name escapes me at the time, um, Gary Barnett and uh, Bob Davey was that the Notre Dame job deserved a better finalist group. And then again, I don't think people were really excited about going from Lou Holtz to Bob Davey. Yeah, I don't have the Rolodex of comparisons from coaching changes. Uh, this is the first one I've covered, so I can't compare it to previous areas. In terms of like energy, in the football program or around the football program, I think the energy around the 2012 season was pretty special. Um, I think the memories of that now may be tarnished by the outcome of the title game and the way the things ended with the Manti Teo uh, scandal that followed. But um, folks were definitely buzzing about Notre Dame that season, and rightfully so. And I think, um, at least from my perspective of having witnessed less of this, there was sort of that same thing of like, can Notre Dame ever get back to competing for national champions uh, championships? Um, Rick Riley calling them irrelevant um, and, and all that stuff. And I think Notre Dame fans were really charged up about that. And then I think it, it's sort of, even in the moment, wore off with the Manti Teo stuff, that the championship game stuff, Brian Kelly interviewing with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, and so I think the air sort of came out of that balloon pretty quickly. Uh, but I think that in the midst of that season, that was, that was a pretty high energy around the program. In terms of um, comparing Marcus Freeman to a coach in college football, I'm not really sure there is a good one. Uh, maybe Eric will have one and, and teach me wrong. But uh, I think, I mean, maybe sort of the defensive version of Lincoln Riley. Um, a, a, a little, And I think this might rub people the wrong way. I think there's a little bit of P.J. Fleck in Marcus Freeman in the way that players buy into his motivation. Um, I think it's a, a much less cheesy way. And I think it's – I think I think – my perspective of PJ Fleck is like, it seems like the players really buy into that, but from the outside, like it looks like why do people like it? <laughs> like, I don't know. I think he sort of comes off the, the wrong way sort of publicly. Whereas I think from with Marcus Freeman, people sort of get why players like Marcus Freeman, he sort of presents himself that way. And it's, it's understanding. Whereas, um, but I do think that sort of the, the buy-in that the players have to that, I think it might be somewhat similar. So it might be a little bit of a stretch, but those are sort of the two coaches that that came to mind when I was trying to find a comparison, but I don't think there's one true, Good comparison. I like the Riley comparison. I didn't end up going down that road, but I, I do think there's some parallels there in that 
Riley was promoted as an assistant. He was a first-time head coach that was promoted at a blue blood program, took over for a guy that was really successful in Bob Stoops, um, and then really was able to make it his own and is a outstanding recruiter. And now he's at USC where he's got even more going from for him in the uh, toolbox. The three that I came up with, the first one, I, I don't like this comparison that much. From a recruiting standpoint and from being a defensive mind, I said Kirby smart, but personality-wise, they're so different. Right. Kirby is so guarded with the media. Um, you know, if the third string offensive tackle has a hangnail, he doesn't want that getting out there. Um, so I kind of scratched him off. So the two I thought maybe most match. One was his mentor at Cincinnati, Luke Fickle, you know, a guy that can recruit well, a defensive mind, has six kids just like Marcus does. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think Marcus is more dynamic as a personality, but I think they both prioritize a lot of the same things and they're both good at a lot of the same things. I would say Mark Stoops, maybe at Kentucky, in terms of player development, being able to recruit, um, you know, personality-wise, maybe not so much, but so so among, you know, college coaches, those are the comps that I see closest. Yeah, I, I think it's really hard to find personality matches. I just don't think college football that colleges don't hire head coaches that have the sort of personality that Marcus Freeman has. Not enough, not enough guys with sort of his background get the opportunity to be, become head coaches, at least from my perspective. It just doesn't seem like that. I, I and maybe maybe people that are around those other programs have a better sense for that, but I just don't I don't see a lot of the a lot of coaches around college football have the sort of same sort of magnetism magnetism uh, that that Marcus Freeman has that I think um, people have really bought into um, from the inside and the outside. Next question is from the Insider Lounge. Uh, Rhino eleven thirty four asked with. Ryan Barnes in line for some major playing time with Cam Hart out. Do you think he could make a serious play to take over for Clarence Lewis in the fall? Well, I can understand why Rhino wonders that about Clarence because Clarence had a rough end of the season and really a rough season. He went backwards in his uh, pro football focus grade. I don't think the flip of Cam Hart and Lewis in their roles uh, Cam going to the field corner and uh, Lewis going to the boundary corner did Lewis any favors. I think he's better suited and there. May be a flip backwards depending on what Mike Mickens and Al Golden want to do. And if, if they do that, then I think Lewis has a better chance to gain traction. As far as the other guys like Barnes and Riley and that group – I think there's certainly an opportunity there to, if not overtake somebody, there's the opportunity there to be trusted. Those, the, Bracey and, um, and Hart and Lewis played like 98% of the snaps at corner last year, which was incredible. Um, one thing Marcus did mention yesterday when somebody asked him who – has impressed him early among freshmen. He did mention Jaden Bellamy and Jalen Bellamy, Jaden Bellamy and uh, Jaden Mickey. Did I get Bellamy's first name right? Yeah, they're both Jadens. Jaden, Jaden, and Jaden. Um, and I thought Mickey would compete for, you know, at least a backup spot. So there's a lot of good competition, but certainly Barnes is one of the people that that they're high on that could make it, make it very interesting. Yeah. I actually asked Jaden Bellamy about who, what, what people call them because they're both Jaden. Um, and early in the spring, he, Jaden Bellamy claimed that he was the Jaden and uh, Jay Mick was what everyone called Jaden Mickey. So he, he had won the, the battle for the Jaden name supremacy. But uh, in terms of Ryan Barnes, I, I, I think there's certainly an opportunity for that, but I, I, I personally feel like I need to see some of the signs of that being uh, possible with sort of his improvement there before I feel too confident about that. Um, Clarence Lewis did struggle at times last year, but his experience certainly matters. So, I mean, 
I there's just as likely a chance, maybe not more likely, that Clarence Lewis improves um, than than Ryan Barnes beats him out. Um, so uh, I, I think, and we've talked about this throughout the offseason, that it's, it's one of the most intriguing position groups this spring. Um, so I'm really fascinated to see that. We didn't really get any competitive reps to watch um, at practice uh, yesterday, but hopefully we get to see quite a bit of that when we get our full practice next weekend. Next question from the Insider Lounge, RRH1. What's Notre Dame's kicking and punting situation look like? Well, RR, there's going to be competition at both spots, and uh, Brian Mason, the new special teams coordinator, has made sure of that by bringing in a transfer kicker and also bringing in some pretty good invited walk-ons and, and again, going to the portal for a walk-on punter. So I think at the top of the depth chart, you're looking at Blake Group, the um, transfer kicker from Arkansas, a 60-year guy that weighs 150 pounds, uh, very, um, very accurate kicker, mentally tough. And then Josh Bryan, I think, will probably be your kickoff guy, and he'll be the backup place kicker in case something happens to Blake. And then as far as the punter, I think the freshman Bryce McPherson, who's not on campus yet, he's a June arrival. I think that's who will likely win that job. And then there's John Sott from uh, Harvard. He's a, a grad transfer walk-on that's going to provide some uh, competition there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who's punting this spring. <laughs> there's no punters on the roster currently, so I, I, that's something I'll be curious to see if we, we get any insight to. I, I hadn't even considered it uh, until uh, this question was asked. Oh, yeah, there's, there's not even a – I didn't even see a whole like because no, normally there's some walk-on punters on the roster, but there weren't there weren't any listed on on yesterday's roster. So um, we'll see if uh, who can do that. Maybe maybe Josh Joshua Bryan can uh, uh, do some punting, or I don't know if Chris Salerno, a, a walk-on kicker, has some punting experience or not. But um, <laughs> or maybe maybe Brian Mason will just be back there doing the punts. <laughs> <as Yeah. the laughs> Uh, next question uh, from the Insider Lounge, SJB75. Do you believe Jarrett Patterson will be physically ready to start in Columbus? I mean, that's what the indications are. The, there's the thing with post-surgery and rehab is there can be progress beyond what's imaginable, and there's also setbacks. So, I mean, the one thing is Jarrett, is used to going into a season without having played spring ball and with still not being a hundred percent going into the season from what we hear at this point, everything is going very well with what's going on with him. You wonder a little bit about upper body strength, uh, but you know, he'll be conditioned. Uh, I should mention that rivals national um, college writer, Mike Farrell pegged Jarrett Patterson as the number four returning lineman in the country at any position on the line. Uh, so certainly, I mean, between his experience and the talent, he'll maybe be able to make up for some physical shortfalls maybe early in the season. But the projection is that he's going to be back and ready to roll in September at Ohio State. Yeah, I mean, I understand the concern with, with it being a, a peck and obviously – uh, that's an important part of the body as a, as a lineman who's trying to push guys around. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I mean, he seems to be on track with his recovery and that's the expectation that he'll be ready. But um, obviously there's, there's ups and downs and, and uh, in how the rehab process goes and hopefully for him um, it goes smoothly and he can be back and playing as close to his potential as possible for that first game, because they certainly uh, will want him to be that. Next question from the Insider Lounge is another one from C.S. Ryan. What is this year's ceiling for the offensive line? Well, I think uh, Mike Golick Jr. gave us a pretty good assessment of that. That, uh, well, I'll, I'll quote Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> uh, so I don't know that we'll see that on September 3rd, but I think in November – We'll see that. And I think some of it depends on injuries and Patterson moving back into that lineup. But I do expect Notre Dame to go from being an 
average line that was getting better to a well above average line by the time they get to November. Yeah, I, I you can't convince me that the ceiling is not the Joe Moore award. I, I just I don't know why you would put a lower ceiling on this group with two potentially great offensive tackles, one of the best centers in football. Um, as long as the guards can be good, that's a that's a great offensive line. So I don't I I think I wouldn't and, say that. The but expect- again, it comes down to as long as the guards can be good because right, but we're talking. Is- but we're talking about the ce- worst offensive lineman. Right. But we're talking about the ceiling. We're not talking about the floor. I mean, I think the, the ex- I don't think it's a fair to expect them to win the Joe Moore award, but I think it's certainly possible. So if you're putting that ceiling, I, I don't know why you would put a lower ceiling on them than that. I, I think uh, um, the, if the pieces come together, right. And you have the coach in place um, that the ceiling is the best offensive line in college football. Okay. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. With Patterson out for the spring, who besides Zeke Carell do you think will get reps at center? Omitting Ohio State, Clemson, BYU, and USC of the other games on the schedule, which are you most worried could be a trap game? Um, so right now, going into spring, you have three injured offensive linemen, and two of them play center. You have Patterson and Pat Coogan that are out, and then Billy Shrouth, who potentially could play center, is out as well. And then you have three players that aren't on campus yet. Uh, Emil Wagner, Ty Chan, and and, um, Ashton Craig. Of those three, Craig, I think, will eventually get reps at center, but he's not here in the spring. So then you kind of look at who's left, and you're basically two deep at every position, but center where you're one deep and you're three deep at right tackle. I think it probably, and that's why I asked Mike Golick the question about Rocco. Um, I think maybe having Rocco take reps there uh, makes some sense because it's not going to hinder his development at a guard. Um, but again, if he's, if you think he's going to be one of your best five and he's going to be a starter, then maybe Christophic ends up there. Uh, you know, Harry will surprise you sometimes. I mean, Sam Mustafer was recruited as a center and ended up as a center. Nick Martin was came out of left field being, and was one of the best centers that Notre Dame's had in the last 20 years. So, um, you know, he could take a tackle and move him to center uh, for the spring. But I kind of think Rocco might make the most sense for me. Yeah, I think it, it sort of matters like what what they're looking looking for. And uh, that's why I thought your your question to to Mike about uh, does that does that like hurt your development at another position by spending some time in the spring? I think was a good question because um, I think that's important and, and sort of could impact the decision there. But I, I think uh, like you mentioned, you're gonna put, you're gonna take reps at other positions if you're potentially gonna play another position too. So. I think um, Joey Tonona did play some center his junior year in high school, so certainly that would be an option of someone who's at least familiar with playing the position. Um, but, I mean, Josh Lug has spent some time there um, in uh, at Notre Dame. Um, I, I think Michael Carmody could probably do it as long as he, he can get the snapping mechanics down. I think, I think the options are open there for a lot of different guys. Um, I, I don't know that we have great answers of what that looks like in, in uh, our small window. The offensive line went as far away from us as possible uh, during yesterday's practice, so we didn't get a, get a good look at that. Um, but uh, I think uh, um, they, they will have some options there, and I, I, don't, I don't think I, – I think here at Heastan will have them prepared for to have a backup. Um, and, and, I, and it's something we can ask Tommy Reese on Saturday, even though – the focus of probably what he's going to be talking about are quarterbacks and the offense, you know, he's the offensive coordinator. So we might be able to get that answer from him. Yeah. Well, the quarterbacks can't start without getting the ball from the center. So it's important to him. <laughs> so uh, as for the trap game, I don't know if Boston college is a trap game, but that's probably the next best team on the schedule uh, outside of those four that Marie mentioned, Ohio state, Clemson, BYU and USC. What, what do you, what are your thoughts on trap games, Eric? Yeah, she she disqualified four games. So I thought Boston College could be because it's right before USC. And if 
if there's a lot on the line for that USC game that's out there, you know, maybe on senior day, it gets a little bit mucky with Phil Jakovic coming back and, and that's a team that's getting better. And George that I, what's that? And George, and George Tagus. Tagus. Yeah, I know George is on the team. I'm, um, and I'm sure he'll do a fine job. Uh, the other one I kind of thought was North Carolina. It's before bye week. It's late September. Um, North Carolina didn't live up to expectations and they lost a great quarterback in Sam Howell, but that team still has a lot of talent. Uh, so I think that could be kind of a sticky game going uh, down to uh, Chapel Hill in late September. Yeah, North Carolina seems to do better when there's not expectations for it. So maybe, right. maybe, maybe they'll, they'll have a good season. They have been recruiting well, so it wouldn't be a surprise if they they do continue that success, even though Sam Howell is gone. Next question from the Insider Lounge is from Andy Carroll. Recently saw that Ohio State has a foundation which will be led by Urban Meyer, which is dedicated to NIL and to some degree recruiting. What does Notre Dame have in the works to maintain a presence on the space? You know, for most Notre Dame fans, and I think it's justified, this is a question that they have because all of a sudden Notre Dame has this great recruiting staff and then you throw in this wild card of NIL and the prospect of either legal or illegal cheating with twisting the NIL rules, which still aren't still aren't in a good place. And, and so I, I understand why we're going to get this question a lot. I get it in chat. I get it, you know, everywhere, but from my grandkids. And <laughs> so um, Notre Dame has done a lot. I mean, they've hired staff. They've brought in people from the outside, like Brandon Wimbush uh, to talk to players and help players. Um, and they do have, a plan as far as branding and so forth like that. Something spe so specific like the Urban Meyer thing and some of the other things that we're hearing about at other schools, you know, Notre Dame isn't going to get that deep into the gray area where there could be violations. But I think maybe not immediately, but eventually Notre Dame will be in a really good spot with an name image likeness landscape. I just think right now the rules are so loose that there's just so many opportunities for abuse and Notre Dame isn't going to try to match that energy with, with the teams that are willing to wade into the gray area. Yeah, I, I agree. That, and that's sort of my outlook is that Notre Dame really wants to embrace NIL and sort of the spirit that it was intended for um, rather than sort of what it's become. Um, and part of, part of that is like what it's become is stuff that Notre Dame technically can't be like organizing. It's gotta be people outside of Notre Dame tangentially um, organizing it. Like the Ohio state foundation isn't started by the university. Um, some boosters have brought in and start, I think Schottenstein is one of the mega boosters at, at Ohio State. And I think he, he has something to do with this foundation. Um, and uh, I think uh, so that, so that he's the guy who has a arena named after him. Yeah. Arena name. Yeah. It probably doesn't mean anything to people who aren't very familiar with, with Ohio State. But so, so I mean, I don't know if there's anything stopping Notre Dame boosters from doing something similar. I don't know. And I, and I can't speak to is Ohio State nudging their booster saying, Hey, you guys need to create this. And I don't have any sense that Notre Dame is doing that to people, but maybe they are privately. Um, I, I think if something like this were in the works, we sh would probably hear about it because <laughs> part of this is PR and getting recruits needing to know about it, um, that ex it, it exists. So I think, uh, um, I, I don't get a sense that anything like that, is at the stages that maybe this Ohio state fund is or other, other funds that have been set up uh, around other different colleges. But um, the only group of folks who are publicly trying to create an NIL fund around Notre Dame is, is Mick Asaf and the Irish players club. And I think that's a, uh, to a smaller scale of what, what we're seeing elsewhere. Um, and, uh, but the, I mean, there's certainly 
they're at least putting their time and effort into something that's trying to help the players. Um, so, so I, I commend them for that. And Braden Lindsay had a thing on a little video on Twitter where he mentioned that all the players so far have received $3,000 from those efforts for the Irish players club. Not that we're talking millions, you know, the thing about Notre Dame too, is they're going to emphasize with some of the lure to get you to play. Hey, let's, uh, put a million dollars in place, you know, you're, you're going to make that kind of money in the pros if you're a five-star player. Um, but they're still going to sell the Notre Dame four, four for 40 concept that at some point football ends and, and so will your NIL uh, earnings and Notre Dame is going to set you up for life later. And that's still a message that resonates with kids. So, and, and, Kyle Hamilton did very well with NIL last year, and I think they can point to that, that if you're a star player, they're still going to be. But they're not going to do the pay-for-play. They're not going to say, hey, if you sign with us, this is going to be your guarantee. Yeah, the, I mean, there are individual cases of guys, people making uh, making money off this. The The women's basketball team um, is, has been very active as of late on, on social media with uh, – and when I say team, the various members, specific players on the team, whether it's Sam Brunel or Maya Dotson, I think uh, Sonia Centrone had something recently. Um, uh, just these the, around the tournament, it seems like there's more interest in, in some of these brands looking for looking for promotion and doing that with with athletes. Um, so so there are opportunities that um, Notre Dame is sort of helping facilitate and making sure that the the, the structure is there that those players can take advantage of that. So it's not like Notre Dame's like living in the stone ages when it comes to NIL, um, but they're, they're not on the cutting questionably legal uh, um, margin uh, of things with NIL. Uh, next question from Pat Holston at ND Patman, any insight into Amber Selking being let go? I'm not sure why. Um, I know I asked, Marcus Freeman specifically about his plan going forward with it. And it was a little word salady. I mean, he, I don't know that they have everything in place with that, but they certainly conceptually believe that they want to continue with that moving forward. Um, so it's not something that I've done the deep dive in why it's not Amber. I thought she did a great job. Maybe it's because that was Brian Kelly's, you know, person, but there's certainly, uh, from what Marcus said, um, committed to moving forward with that, that facet in the program. It just won't be Amber Selking. Yeah. It, it, it didn't seem like Marcus was necessarily prepared for that question or had an answer to, I mean, and part of it is because I don't think he has a, a concrete answer for it right, right now. Uh, and honestly, is sitting at the back of the room when you asked that, it was like, oh, that was a that, that was it was just a sharp turn from the previous question that you asked. I was like, I mean, it's a fair question, and I think people are interested in that. Um, and we had, we had heard that that she was no longer she was no longer uh, uh, doing that for the football program. So um, I, uh, I I'm curious to see how that how that develops and where where they sort of get that from. I, I, and I, I think it's probably important to mention like probably a lot of the lessons that the players learned from Amber can still be applied. They don't necessarily need her to be here to do that, but I think there's probably opportunities for Notre Dame to figure out how to uh, continue to strengthen something that players have spoken highly about that, that helping them and um, having that guidance and uh, perspective. Uh, Jack Cohn is one of them that, that spoke that highly of her. And then our last question is from our newest employee at by Kyle Kelly, uh, and in case you missed it, Kyle is on our staff now covering recruiting for us. If you are on Twitter at all, you would have noticed uh, that he tweeted about the, I believe it was 69 different offers, whether it was re-offers or offers in the mostly 2024 class. And there was one in the 2023 class that happened yesterday on Pot of Gold Day, a.k.a. St. Patrick's Day. Um, and uh, Kyle asked us, which game ruined your guys' perfect brackets? Well, mine isn't close to being perfect, but there's one game that has kept me um, out of being in first place in our pool, and that was Arkansas-Vermont. Um, if if Vermont had been able to not make some silly mistakes at the end, 
then I would be leading our pool. Now, ours isn't based strictly on how many you get right and how many you get wrong. You get rewarded for for picking upsets, basically picking them correctly, uh, that, that there's a point system based on seeds and so forth like that. Uh, but I'm still in the mix there. I'd say for the long term, that game also hurt me because um, I don't have, uh, you know, Arkansas could certainly get to the Sweet 16, and a lot of people would have predicted that. Iowa is a team that um, I predicted to get to the Sweet 16, but I don't think a lot of people have Richmond getting to the Sweet 16. But I don't, I didn't lose like a Final Four team or an Elite Eight team. Those are the only two Sweet 16 teams I lost because um, I had Kentucky losing in the second round. So I'm feeling pretty good about, pretty, pretty good about my prospects going into today. Yeah, I, my, I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I'm, I'm struggling hard. I mean, I missed the second game of the tournament, so that's what technically ruined my perfect bracket. <laughs> I had South Dakota State beating Providence, uh, and then uh, um, I had Kentucky in the Final Four. So it's a disaster. But I don't, I don't mind. I, I spent very little time trying to come up with it. Uh, spent some of the precious moments I had between Notre Dame winning in the uh, in the first four game and waking up the next morning for Notre Dame's first spring practice, uh, hurriedly picking picking my bracket. So um, I was I didn't go into this with great expectations that I would ha- have a lot of success. So hopefully some of our listeners are in a, in in more in Eric's shape than my shape when it comes to the brackets. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Google Podcast and other popular podcast platforms. Like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, share our podcast feed with a friend. Um, and we will be back next week with another podcast. Until then, stick with insidenditesports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. Mm-hmm.